Father, we'll read a story this morning that for many of us, for as long as we've been in church, we've read it at least once a year. It's one of those passages, Father, that you know well, and that sometimes we just skip right over. So we ask that as we spend just a couple of moments here this morning trying to unpack what it means for us today, that you would give each person who is here this morning a new understanding and a fresh view of something we've read hundreds of times. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. So I'm going to ask a question. And for those of you who are brave, maybe you'll answer this question, okay? And it's a simple raise of the hand. How many of you watch Netflix? Yeah. It's all right. It's okay if you do, okay? There's lots of good documentaries. Why do we love watching Netflix? A couple of reasons. Number one is, it's a place where we gather or where there is a, a ton of stories that are being told. See, the reason we love Netflix isn't just because we like to be distracted from life. Right? We don't go to Netflix so that we can binge on hour after hour after hour of that television show where we know when we get to the last show of that season, it's just going to be a cliffhanger, right? Like We torture ourselves, right? You see, the reason we watch so much Netflix or any other streaming service is because we as humans love story. There is something that's powerful about story that we love. So maybe you're one of the people here who doesn't watch Netflix or any kinds of those things, but maybe you like reading books. Maybe you like listening to podcasts that have stories in them. Many of us are, have started listening to audiobooks, right? We listen to audiobooks all day long because we love story, because story is built into the fabric of your being. Now, I want you to think about this for one second. I want everyone to answer this in your own mind. Think about your favorite, it could be film or TV series or book or story. And I want you to think about that and just hold it in your mind. You see, the reason that those stories tend to be so powerful for us is because they're filled with suspense. They're filled, if they're really good stories, they're filled with conflict. And what we find in, in the anatomy of how you write a really good story is that there has to be conflict. There has to be moments where you're not really sure how the protagonist is going to get out of that predicament and quandary that they find themselves in. And so every good story, I want you to think about this now going forward, every good story, the impetus or that beginning part that you really love begins with an inciting incident. It begins with something where you're just like, I know, because the music in the background tells you, I know something exciting is about to happen. And what we end up finding is that there is this kind of uphill crescendo of like, oh my goodness, something's going to happen. And this doesn't have to be one of those scary movies. It can be any show that you're watching. It can be a comedy and then it gets to that point where it's like, okay, this is the climax. This is the tipping point. This is where everything will change going forward. And a really good story will have conflict. It'll have uphill battles. It'll have these moments that bring you in and draw you in and then provide an imagination for what reality could be like. And so this morning, I want us to look at a story in Scripture that that inciting incident happens right at the beginning of the story. 
You see, so many times we think when we come to the Bible, or I've heard people say that, you know, the Bible, I know it's powerful, and I know it's God's holy book, but sometimes it's boring. And sometimes I've read that story so many times, there's nothing I could possibly learn from it. And in fact, that's what we do when we gather here on Saturday mornings. We, we as preachers don't typically pick the most obscure stories in Scripture. We tend to use the stories that we already know because we know that the more we repeat something, the more it becomes ingrained in our psyche. So this morning, I want you to look at a story with me. The story is found in Luke chapter 1. And I'm just going to start reading it, and I'll unpack it as we go. But again, I want you to think about this. It's a story you know well, but it's a story that might give us new meaning and new understanding. So Luke chapter 1, it'll be on the, t- on the screen. Verse 26 begins with this. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. So pause here for a second. Whenever you see in scripture that a word keeps being referenced or a word keeps showing up, that's, that's something that should send like these flags into your head that say, okay, something is about to happen. There's something special about this word, and the fact that the author keeps repeating this word is sending the, my antenna up to say something is important about this word. And he came to her and said, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. For those of us who have parents that are still alive, when you were younger and you wanted something from your parent, did we just go and demand what we want? Do you guys just demand from your parents? Parents are like, "Mm -hmm, yeah, they do. No, but we don't. There's a way that we would butter our parents up right? So if that meant that your parents would come home from work, you'd make sure that the house was cleaned up or that it looked like you were actually working on cleaning the house when they came home, right? Or your homework was done. Maybe, maybe if your mom has like a special meal, you maybe prepared it if you're inclined to do that. But right, this is what we do as children. We would butter our parents up because we're going to make a big ask of them at some point after we know they're in a good mood. Isn't that true? Like, if a parent's in a good mood, they're more inclined to give us what we want. But if they're in a bad mood, because as parents, y'all work so hard and long hours to provide for us, it's harder. So this is what's happening here in this passage. The angel is coming to Mary. And again, the story tells us that Mary was a virgin. And the angel is coming, and in a sense, he's preparing for what he's about to tell her. He's trying to make things as smooth and as easy to accept as possible. And what's powerful about this story is it says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed. Because whenever you are encountered by God, especially in the, old, in the, in the, in the New Testament and the Old Testament, whenever angels would come to these people, sometimes these angels would bring words of judgment. Sometimes these angels would bring words of rebuke. So in the Bible, when the Bible writers say that Mary was perplexed, it might even mean that she was a little bit afraid because she said, oh, you know, I know what happens when angels come. 
It's not usually good news all the time. Sometimes when angels came in the Old Testament, they were afraid. The Bible even said at one point in the Old Testament that no one can see God face to face and live. And so there is this sense of she's perplexed because she knows that it's a good thing. Yeah, I've never seen an angel in real life, at least that I knew was an angel. And I haven't seen God face to face. But I imagine that I would love to see God face to face. But for Mary, she knew that it carried so much more with it. And so she was perplexed. Maybe she was even afraid for what was about to happen. And it says that she was perplexed, but the angel knew, and he said, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And so we're going to keep going. It says, Now and now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. See, this is a story that we learn at Orangewood Academy and all of our other Adventist schools. This is a story that we tell our kids. This is a story that preachers preach. And what happens when you know a story so well, you think that it has nothing left to share with you. But the reality is, is that this angel is bringing such an immense and heavy message to none other than a virgin. A young lady who was engaged. Now think about this for a second. In the first century, I mean, even today, if someone is not married and, and they get pregnant, it's still somewhat of a taboo. It's still somewhat of a, uh, you know, what are we going to tell our friends? What is the church going to say? What is the school going to say, right? And so there is this kind of trepidation that happens when that happens in 2018. Imagine more than 2,000 years ago, that was subject, like, they could have literally stoned her. They could have stoned her to death because they would have assumed that she had committed adultery or at the very least fornication. Not only that, you know, we always focus on Mary, but then there was a second character, which was Joseph. Now think about this. I'm going to fast forward to the end of this first part of the story. But what we know is that Joseph, although he had considered breaking up with her and kind of cutting his losses— We know that Joseph ends up staying. So here's what we know. Mary was a virgin, and all of a sudden she was going to be pregnant, and she was going to conceive, and she was going to give birth to the Son of God. Joseph being what the Bible calls a righteous man, which doesn't mean that you're without sin. All it means is that he was someone who trusted God and had a relationship with God, and he walked with God. He stayed to help raise Jesus. But what the Bible doesn't tell us is that they were going to be on a trajectory of their life, not only that would change the world, but that would be difficult. Because any time that Mary would be seen in public, they would say, oh yeah, that's, you know, she's pregnant, but she's not married yet. So it was almost like this scarlet letter that would be on her, and people would always be whispering behind closed doors or whispering as she walked by, and it was always going to be like this red mark, and she was willing to go through that because of the purpose of what she was doing. And the men, well, the men would probably have looked at Joseph and said like, oh, yeah, you're, yeah you guys didn't do anything to, to make this happen, so why are you staying, Joseph? He would have been a subject of ridicule. He would have known for the rest of his life that people would have been talking behind his back and her back, and they would always have been spoken of with a wink and a nod about their situation. Things don't really change that much, do they? Because that seems to happen nowadays. 
not virgin births, but rather the way that people interact and talk about each other. And the angel says, you will bear a son and you will name him Jesus. And he will be great and he will be called son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. Not only was she found to be pregnant and unmarried, but now her story is that the reason that she was this way is because she was going to give birth to who? The son of the most high God. And I love this next part. He, oh, not this next part, but the one after this. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom, and there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin, right? This is the inciting incident, right, in the story arc of how Jesus' birth happened, right? How can this happen because I am a virgin? And the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. These are words that if you read the Old Testament are words of protection. These are words of promise. The fact that God will, um, the Most High will overshadow you. It's that psalm that says that he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High, right? It's this, this words that, yes, God is asking Mary to do something that is quite literally impossible. And God gives language that says, yes, but you will be protected. Yes, I will be there with you. And therefore, the child who is born will be born holy, and he will be called the Son of God. And this is this passage that all of you quote at some point in your life. For nothing will be impossible with God. Think about that for a second. The angel had just come to Mary and literally defined something that is completely impossible. A virgin, birth, a virgin con- who is pregnant, who is about to conceive, not just a regular guy, but someone who would be the son of God and would take away the sins of the earth. Literally the most impossible, unbelievable thing. And God ends that first part of the story with saying, for nothing will be impossible with God. And we love this part. We love this part that says nothing will be impossible with God. And it's true. But the very next sentence, I think, is even more telling and is going to speak into your life in just a moment. You see, because when God does, calls you to do something impossible in your life, you see, when God calls you, he calls you to come out of your comfort zones. When God puts something on your heart, the more impossible it feels, the better, because you know that God is the one who is placing this calling and this dream in your life. You see, right now, and, and, and I see this on social media all the time, and I'm part of the problem, but there's like always like, hey, here are the five steps to accomplish the, like the life of your dreams, right? Have you guys all seen that? Yeah, you have, I know, right? Or, or if you follow this path or if you follow my formula, your life is going to be better. You're going to make more money. It's going to be more fulfilling, right? Like, so we have all these formulas about how we can find more happiness, And our goals just become reduced to smaller steps until we get to that life that we want. But when God puts a dream in your heart, it's always going to seem impossible. And the only response that we can give is a response of Mary where she says, Here I am, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. 
And then the angel departed. Think about this. This angel has told her an impossible story. Right? The climax is that, hey, you're going to give birth to this child, and he will be the son of God. And her response wasn't, you, no, I'm not going to do it. I'll do it next year. I'll do it when I have more money in my bank account. Uh, I'll do it when my kids are out of school. I'll do, right? we, we have all of these excuses that we use for why we won't do what God is calling us to do. When what we see in Scripture is that the biblical response to God when he says that something impossible will happen in your life is to say, here I am. Here I am. It's the phrase that has been uttered from the prophets in the Old Testament to our heroes in the Old Testament to Mary, our New Testament hero, that says, here I am. Whatever you want, Lord, I will do. Whatever you're putting on my heart, I will give my life to doing that because I know that you're not asking me to do something that will be done in vain, but you're asking me to do something that could literally change the course of human history. Now, there's this quote I want to share with you here that I found in my reading as I was going through. But here's what this quote says. The status quo that does not obtain in God's economy. When God moves into the life of the world, everything changes. You see, when God moves into your life, everything changes You see, because before God enters into our life, we're still doing everything just for ourselves, just what I want, what's going to make my life better. But what we find throughout the entirety of Scripture is that when God moves into your life, God calls you into a new reality. The old is gone, the new has come. And in the face of insurmountable things in your life, you can always go back to the promise of God that says, nothing is impossible with God. It doesn't say some things are impossible. It says nothing, absolutely nothing under the sun. The entire story of our faith is that impossible happened and it can happen again. Not only the virgin birth, but also the death on the cross and the resurrection. A lot of people don't believe in in God or in Jesus because they say that the resurrection could never have happened. To which I say to them, no, you're right. It is impossible. And yet that's how God chooses to inaugurate the kingdom of heaven on earth. So yes, it's impossible. But I believe in the God who makes all things possible. And so I want to just, I want to kind of draw near to the end here. Whoa, we're going to get out of church early, y'all. You're welcome. <laughs> I always say that and then I end up going for another 30 minutes. So. Extra credit this morning. Here we go. So now we're going to look at this next passage and it's attached to the same, the same chapter. So Mary is tasked with the impossible. God promises to do the impossible through her. And she says, okay, here I am. And then this is her longer response. It's what we call the Magnificat, or it's the Song of Mary. And she says, listen to the response. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant, meaning her. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Now pause here for a second. You see, this is a song. The song of Mary is something that we usually do for call to worship. Or we have someone memorize it, and that's like their special music, right? Their poem for the Sabbath. 
But if you stop and you really think about it, the song of Mary is a song of, the re- of reversal. God looks at things and he reverses the order of them in the world. So let me see this for a second. He says, you have looked with favor on the lowliness of your servant, and now I will be called blessed for all generations. Do you remember when Jesus says that he came for the poor, the lame, the sick, the marginalized, the outcast? Jesus literally says those words that he comes for those that society has cast out. You see, if Jesus wanted to be, if God wanted to have Jesus born to someone, he should have done it to someone in a royal palace, someone that already had esteem in life. But God doesn't choose the people who are already in power to carry out his will because God knows that sometimes the people, for those of us who are in power, it's easier to to act out of our pride instead of acting out of our trust in God. So God chooses a lowly, outcast, marginalized, poor woman to quite literally be the God-bearer. That's reversal number one. God reverses the order of society. And then it says, For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. For God has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in, in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. Think about that for a second. So when the Bible writer says that God has stretched out the strength of his arm, those are words with military overtones, right? We see this in the prophecy of Daniel as we look towards the end of time, right? That God throws this big rock through the statue and destroys it all because only what kingdom will last for all eternity? Yeah, the kingdom of God, right? So what we find here in Luke, in this song of praise, is that God, that the people who are proud, the Bible tells us that pride is the sin that goes before all other sins. That it is our pride and our ego that is the base sin that quite literally causes us all other sins. And what Mary says in this song of the great reversal is that God would scatter the proud and bring down tyrants. That God would bring down the powerful who have neglected to follow the will of God. And he has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And if you're just with us for today, the last couple of Sabbaths we've talked about scriptures and the prophets in the Old Testament and how they were literally in exile. They had disobeyed God and part of their kind of natural punishment is that they would go into exile and lose everything that was meaningful to them. And so what we find here in the Song of Mary is she says, yeah, like the people who deserve your wrath, the great reversal is that you will show them mercy now. And my question for you, when you look at the story arc of your life, when you look at your life and you have to ask yourself, what is the great reversal that God needs to do in your life? You see, this song of Mary isn't just a poetic masterpiece. It's not just a moment of praise. But it continues the motif that God can do impossible things. And I know that if you're here this morning, no one's life is perfect. And I have no doubt that every one of us, 
are facing something in our life that maybe may not be all that big in the grand scheme of things, but it feels really big to us. And the Song of Mary is a promise that the God of the great reversal can create a reversal in your life to bring wholeness and joy and completeness to your life. You see, we gather here on Saturday mornings to sing and to read scriptures because by remembering these stories, we are remembering that we believe in a God who stops at nothing to be a part of your life. We believe in a God who quite literally has the power to do impossible things, and God does impossible things. And we're here because we believe in a God who invites us to do these things so that we can make the world a better place. And I know that as Seventh-day Adventists, we always long for a future or a day when God will make everything better. But until that day, God has called you to work with him to make this place better for as long as we are here. And this last part of the song says, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever, you are the descendants of Abraham. The same call of Abraham to be a blessing to the world is the same call that God is calling you into today. So we ask, what does all of this have to do with Christmas? Has everything to do with it? Because it is during Christmas that we remember that God incarnated himself. God came to human history in the flesh so that he could give us the greatest gift of all, which was the forgiveness of even our worst sins and allows us to live in the newness of life. So just as Mary... And faced with the most impossible and improbable of circumstances, her spirit and her faith allowed her to say, here I am. It's my hope, it's my prayer, and it's my challenge to you that as you learn to listen to the voice of God and as God continues to pull you out of your comfort zone, that you would be like Mary and say, here I am. Do what you will with my life.